following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're going to see a mass exodus occur very, very quickly at the end of the service. There's a wedding immediately after this. One of our uh, couple of people here at Cornerstone are getting married. And there's a number of us who are in it in one way, shape, or another, just either attending or officiating or something. I'm afraid I'm going to call him Mark in the middle of the, of the wedding. I'm not used to, you know, I have to go from one thing right to another with no break in between. So just pray for me in that. But uh, so at the end, I'm going to pray and I'm going to walk straight out and there's going to be other people walking out. It's not that we don't love you visitors. We will see you next time. Uh, today also is going to be part two of a two-part message from Mark 14, 1 through 11 as we are beginning our study here of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you weren't here for last week's message, I would encourage you to go on our website and listen for yourself, because I will not be reviewing everything that we talked about last Sunday this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then, as usual, we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1, if it comes up. There we go. It was now two days before the Passover... And the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why has the ointment been wasted like that? For, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. Spirit, I ask that you will open up our eyes to see and our hearts to understand your word we want to be reminded, Father, that the events we are reading about today and as we pick back up and mark in the new year, this is not just some terrible tragedy. This is not just some accident. This has been your plan since before the world began. This isn't plan B, as Chris reminded us just a few weeks back. This, is, this has always been plan A. And so I pray that we will see that afresh this morning that we will marvel at what that teaches us about you, about your great love for us, and that as we walk out of here today, we will be more like you as a result. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I began last week by reminding us of the old saying that things aren't always what they appear. And that saying, I, I, I told it to you last week because it's been the the phrase that keeps running through my mind over and over and over again as I have been studying these first 11 verses of chapter 14. Uh, last week, just to set the stage for us, really, I walked us through three elements of the setting here in verses 1 and 2. We talked 
fairly quickly about the timing of these events, just because as I've been working through uh, Mark's gospel here, and particularly through the Passion Week, one of my desires has been to try to help you get an understanding of where we're at in the story. And so I tried to help you understand a little bit of that last week and some of the difficulties surrounding this. It's hard to know exactly what day it is for sure. It's either Wednesday or Thursday, and the reason it's hard to know is because of how the Jews count their days. They begin and end their days at sunset each day. And so I think it's probably Wednesday of the Passion Week. I might be wrong. It could be Thursday. But either way, I was trying to keep us on track a little bit. That was one thing. Secondly, we talked about the impending event that is dominating the minds of everyone who is involved in the story, and that is Passover, the very thing that's two days away. So at the time all this is occurring, Jerusalem would have been filled to overflowing with people at this point, with Jews who had come from all over the area to worship and to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt so many years ago. They're really commemorating I likened it to Christmas last time, but I thought about it even more this week. It's almost like a weird mix of Christmas and July 4th for them. It's the celebration of Christmas, but the idea of, of the beginning of their nation uh, there at Passover. And so this is what's going on. And then thirdly, we talked about the plot. And it's at this point that I'll begin to pick up with where we left off last Sunday. All I addressed last week regarding the plot was that the chief priests and the scribes see only one course of action left to them in in terms of how they can deal with this man, Jesus. And Mark lays it out very plainly. They want to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So that means they have predetermined the punishment. They've already done the sentencing phase of his, of his trial, and the, the sentence is death. It's execution. They just need to arrest him and then somewhere in the mix figure out what crime they're going to charge him with to get to the end that they want to get to. And I just want to point out that this is laid out pretty much in order of importance in their minds. The most important thing by far is his death. The execution is what they're aiming for from the very beginning. They are also a little bit worried about how to arrest him given the nature of the, of the events that are going on that week. And least important of all is just simply the reason why they're doing it. They don't really care why. They just care that it happens in the end. And the only hiccup, as I just said, is, is the feast itself. There's so many Jews with so many expectations, and there's so, probably, probably so many rumors going around the city about who this guy Jesus is that, that Mark makes it very clear they want to arrest him stealthily. They want to do it quietly. They're, they're concerned about doing it during the feast because they're afraid it might, might cause an uproar from the people. And you think about the chief priests and the scribes. These guys are no dummies. They're smart. They are, they're, they're calculating. They're shrewd. They are planning to lay a trap for Jesus of some sort that will ultimately lead to his execution. But at the same time, they don't want to be seen as being overly involved in this, right? They, they can't get their hands too dirty in the midst of it, nor do they want to do it in a way that causes Jesus to become a martyr, either to his followers or more generally to the, to the people in Jerusalem. So, so if you think about it, They've got most of their plan, but their plot is lacking two important elements. It's lacking, first, the means. They need a way, just a a practical, physical way to arrest him, to charge him and kill him that doesn't come from them, that makes them look uninvolved by and large, and even better, if they could work it out, that makes them look like they are the ones who are defending God's faithfulness. That would be the the best possible scenario. And number two, their plan is lacking a justification. They need a reason to do all of this. They need something to charge him with, something to arrest him for, and ultimately, 
to kill him for, they need someone probably to come up with something reasonable and legal, and we put that in the biggest quotation marks you have ever put on any word, to, to, that they can use against him to bring about their desired end. Now, with all of that in mind, I want you to look at the very next verse. In verse 10, Mark tells us that then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, I doubt I really need to introduce Judas to us. I, I think he's pretty well known, not just in the believing world, but in the unbelieving world as well. He's one of the original uh, 12 disciples chosen by Jesus personally to minister with him. He's been with him since the beginning of his public ministry. He is an, a trusted insider through and through. And yet, as I said, even amongst un, un, uh, unbelievers, it's not a good sign for coming up in the next hour, uh, even amongst unbelievers, his name is infamous. I mean, how many of you, when you were naming your children, like seriously contemplated the name Adolf? No? Uh, Rasputin? Nero? So there's a reason we don't name our children certain things. There's a reason we don't name our children Judas Iscariot. His name is associated with betrayal. And in verse 10, you begin to see that his betrayal of Jesus will be the solution to the problems that the, the chief priests and the scribes have, right? They, they lack the means, the, the, the practical way of carrying out their plot. Well, Judas can take care of that. He can provide them with the means. He knows their movements, their patterns. He knows the, where they're going to be. He knows when they'll be alone. And, and best of all, if one of his own betrays him, then the chief priests and the scribes can then keep their hands completely clean. Look, one of his own turned him in for, for whatever it is. So it's the perfect setup. They also lack justification, and, and I think Judas could have provided that, or at least they think maybe he could have. They need some reason to arrest him, kill him. Well, Judas has been on the inside. He knows the things that are talked about behind the scenes. Maybe he can give them something that others could not. And so, so they're glad, Mark tells us. Judas is the solution to their problems. They're happy he's here. They're willing to pay him for his efforts. And now that the deal is struck, Mark tells us that Judas goes back to Jesus and looks for an opportunity to betray him. Now, let's pause for a moment. And let me ask you two questions that I think are really important right here. First, just at the human level, okay, just thinking, putting yourself in, in, in Jesus' position and in the scenario as Mark has laid it out, here we have very powerful people who are plotting his execution. Do you see the danger that Jesus is in? Just at the human level, do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you, you, know, you have one of his own disciples who's now joined forces with these people and seeking Jesus' death. I mean, you should be somewhat overwhelmed at this moment with the injustice of the entire situation, should you not? He's not just guilty until proven innocent. He's guilty before even being or committing or being charged with a crime. His guilt was predetermined. They just need a way to do it. Jesus, from a human perspective, is in real danger. This is a terrible set of circumstances for him to be in. It is truly a perfect storm, and Jesus is caught in the middle of it. Can you, can you feel it? Can you just, I'm not asking you to understand. I'm asking, can you feel it? Remember, though, the things while they appear bad, aren't always what they appear. 
And the second question, I think, will make that very obvious to us. The second question was this, and I think it's the most important question of all. Did I forget how to count or to read this morning? How many of you have been bothered this entire time by the fact that I said the very next verse and then I jumped to verse 10? Several of you. Oh, somebody just got it. Yes. You see, after we looked at verses 1 and 2, I told you with emphasis that we wanted to look at the very next verse, and then I read verse 10. Well, clearly verse 10 wasn't the very next verse, and yet it was. And to show you why it was the very next verse, let me put a slide up here that will be very familiar to some of you. Others, it will be new. Here we go. Oh, someone even knew it in advance. Now, this is familiar to all you old-timers with us here in Mark now. You've been studying Mark with us for a while. You know this word. We've seen it now several times. If you're new, though, let me explain to you exactly what this is. Um, Over the course of our study in Mark, we have probably, this is probably the fifth time, I'm guessing. I didn't count, but I'm guessing about the fifth time that we've seen Mark use a literary slash rhetorical device known as intercalation. And intercalation is when a storyteller takes two stories, and in order to put them together and show you the connection between the two, they arrange the stories in a very specific way. They begin by telling story A, and then at some point they stop story A, and they tell story B in its entirety before coming back at the end and finishing story A. And the example I've used in our own setting for our own understanding is Saving Private Ryan. If you remember that movie, it opens with with a guy walking through a graveyard and he's falling down on his knees before a grave and he's got tears in his eyes and the camera zooms in. And then when it zooms back out, it's World War II, it's D-Day. And it's not until the end of the movie that they come back to the the cemetery and you see what was going on. Okay, that's that's the same thing. That's That's intercalation. And the reason you do this is because there's something about one of the stories, most often story B, that should inform your understanding of how you read the other stories. So normally story B affects the way we read story A. Well, here in Mark 14, 1 through 11, I've walked us now through story A in its entirety. It's the plot. You know, that's why verse 10 was, in a sense, the very next verse after verse 2. It's the, the completion of the plotting story. And so as it stands right now, all we see, all we understand is that man, Jesus is in a really bad situation. However, we now need to go back and look at story B and let story B then help us understand what Mark is really trying to do here in the larger section. So now go back and look at verse 3. Mark writes, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Okay, so just pause for a moment. What's going on? It's, it's pretty simple. Apparently, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party at the house of a guy who lives in the town of Bethany. His name is Simon the leper. His actual name is just Simon but in very, would have been a very common name. So they're distinguishing him by referring to him as Simon the leper. I guess to distinguish him from like Simon the guy with dandruff and Simon the man who suffers with IBS. But <laughs> anyway, he's here. Uh, he must have had leprosy at some point, but now he, he's apparently cured because he owns a, a house in town and he's having a dinner party. He's inviting people to it. Apart from this, we know nothing about this guy. So as Jesus is reclining at the table, a woman, most likely not someone who was invited to the original party, comes into the room with what Mark calls an alabaster flask of of ointment, of 
of pure nard. And, and both the flask itself and what it contained were, as Mark says, almost in a, it's almost understated here. They were very costly. Nard is an ointment, a perfume, which is a combination of two plants, the Nadala plant, which comes from Nepal, which think about it in Jesus's day, how hard that would have been to get plants, spices all the way from Nepal into to Israel. Uh, and then another plant called spike, which is why it's sometimes referred to as spike nerd in other parts of the New Testament. She breaks this flask and she pours it over his head, an act most commonly associated with anointing someone to be king. So this is what's going on. However, there were some, verse 4, who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. A denarii is an average day's income for a working man in Jesus' day, okay? So you think about that, it's, you know, some made more, some made less. This is, this is the average. This would, this would represent basically the median household income in Jesus' day over the course of a year. And to put that in terms for us to like process, in Virginia Beach, the median household income for, for our city is $62,998. Some of you are like, who's these jobs? I know what you're thinking, but that's that's average. That's the median household income. Imagine for just a moment if someone walked through that back door and walked up to Jared is over there, or Ed, and they took this bottle of $63,000 perfume, broke it, and just dumped it on their head. Several of you laughed and snickered. Thank you. That, that's what she's done. And some of the folks who are sitting here watching this happen, who are recognizing the value I mean, $63,000. They're watching the value just go on the floor. They're asking this question, why this waste? Why waste this? We, we could have sold this and given the money to the poor. It sounds very, very pious, but I doubt it truly was. Why waste something so valuable on Jesus? That's the question. But notice Jesus' response. He says to them, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but, but you will not always have me. What, 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 what do you mean, Jesus? We'll always have the poor, but we won't always have you. What, what's going on? He continues, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You know, I, I don't know who this woman is. Some people put out suggestions of who they think it might be. We don't know for sure. And I certainly don't know what her intentions were in anointing Jesus with this $63,000 container of oil. Some have wondered if she's one of Jesus' followers who given all of the hype and the excitement about who he is and why he's in the city, maybe she's trying to nudge him in a not-so-subtle way to, to stand up and be the Messiah King that, that Israel is hoping for, that, that she'll be able to force his hand almost to go out and, and be who the people had hoped. I, I don't know if that's true. It might be. I, I just don't know. What I do know, though, is how Jesus views this act. He views her act as one of anointing his body beforehand for burial. 
You see, in Israel, when, when you died, your loved ones, your friends, your family would take your body and they would wrap it in, in cloths and strips of, of fabric and they would pour ointment all over the body and stuff spices in amongst the fabrics. It's, it's partially done as an act of love, as a sign of respect and devotion, so to speak, for the, for the family member, but it's also kind of practically done to avoid the smell of decay. But, but Jesus likens this act to that burial anointing, not the, not the kingly anointing. He likens it to the burial anointing. The only difference, though, is that she's doing it before he dies rather than after. That's... That's Jesus' view of this event. So, so let's put a few things together here. First, Jesus makes it clear to, to the disciples and really everyone else in the room that he will not always be with them, right? Okay, he just throws that out there just sort of in passing. Done. Secondly, he likens her act to this, uh, this sacrificial act, I should say, uh, of anointing him with this very costly perfume to that of a burial anointing, just doing it before he dies, not after. And third, then, he tells them that whenever or wherever the gospel, the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I just want you to, for a moment, consider the assumptions in that statement. It assumes, number one, that there will be some good news to tell. It assumes, number two, that this good news will spread around the entire world. And number three, it assumes that Jesus knows enough beforehand to assure both her and everyone listening that this story will be told in perpetuity in, her mem in memory of her. Now, I asked you two questions earlier. Can I ask you a third one now? Does this sound like the talk of a man who is about to be unknowingly caught in a sinister trap? who's about to be unknowingly betrayed by one of his own, who's about to be unexpectedly arrested, tried, and executed on false charges? Does this sound like a man who is in real danger? Who is who's going to be, un, be the unwilling victim of a terrible set of circumstances? Who is going to be caught off guard in a perfect storm? Does it sound like any of that to you? What the, the story A would maybe make you think? No, not at all. See, I think Mark has put these two stories together on purpose in order to show us that the death that Jesus is about to die is no accident. It's not in man's hands. The men think it's in their hands. The men are plotting all these things, but it's not in their hands. Rather, this is the very thing that he has come to Jerusalem. No, that he's even come to earth to do. And the chief priests and scribes think they're plotting to take away Jesus' life. Mark is showing us that Jesus is plotting to lay it down. The chief priests and scribes think they're going to surprise Jesus by arresting him. Mark shows us that Jesus knows everything in advance, even what's going to happen beyond his death. Judas thinks he's going to betray Jesus. Mark is going to show us by the end of this chapter that Jesus has known all along who Judas was. And even tells him to go do what he's going to do. Judas thinks he needs to find an opportunity to do his dirty work. Mark, the rest of the New Testament, and all of the Old Testament show us that the plans and processes that brought about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have been planned by God before the world even began. So let me make four applications from this. First, I'm reminded that God knows everything in advance. Everything. 
you know, I was talking to someone uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about this topic, and I'm going to use part of it and expand on it with this statement. Do you realize that God can never be disappointed or surprised? Never disappointed, never surprised. Because to be disappointed or surprised means to be caught off guard by something unexpected, either bad or good. Well, God knows everything, so nothing unexpected ever happens to him. And you can see that here with with Jesus' death. The chief priests, the scribes, and even Judas, they think they've got a great secret plot to to kill Jesus, but he already knows. (laughs) He already knows. You're just anointing me for burial beforehand. They're not taking him off guard. He knew perfectly and completely in advance what he was walking into, and he did it willingly. Folks, that's not only true of the circumstances of why Jesus or how Jesus ends up on the cross, it's also true of why he was going there in the first place. He knew our sins perfectly and completely in advance, and he died for them willingly. There's a quote in J.I. Packer's Knowing God that I I love, and and it's so good I just have to read it to you because I couldn't probably improve on it in any way. He's making the point that God knew perfectly and completely in advance the kind of people he was choosing to make his own children. Okay, This is the point. I don't think I've read this to you, but if I have, forgive me, it's still good. Um, he knew he was choosing sinners. He knows he's choosing rebels. He knew he was, he was choosing criminals, and yet he loved us and chose us still. Right. So that's the, the general point, and here's what Packer writes. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his, God's love to me, is utterly realistic. And just think about that phrase for a moment, that his love is utterly realistic. He's not like some starry-eyed grandpa who looks at us and never sees our our wrongs, nor is he some uh, cosmic killjoy who looks for every bad thing we do. His love for us is utterly realistic. He knows exactly who you are. Exactly. You don't even know who you are like Jesus knows. You, You have convinced yourself of certain lies about yourself, about what kind of person you are. God is not deceived by any of our lies. His love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. It's never like he like one day looks and goes, what did I do? Who did I? Oh, I can't believe they did that. Oh my goodness, if I had known that, I would not have sent my son to the cross for them. No discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. That's in the quote. That God knows everything in advance brings about great comfort in the midst of trials and troubles, temptations, etc., doubts, because we know that the one who knew everything about us, who is utterly realistic in his knowledge of us, loved us still sent his son to die for us still, and chose us still. Second, I'm reminded that total commitment is the only right response to Jesus. Total commitment is the only right response to Jesus. You've got to admire this woman. This is a lavish act of love that she is showing to Jesus. I mean, regardless of what her intentions are, I don't know what they are, but regardless of what they are, this is, this is lavish to say the least. Maybe she did know he was about to die. Maybe she's doing this because she, she wants to do something special for him before he's, he's buried. Or, as I said already, more likely she's probably trying to do something to acknowledge his kingship that 
to maybe to nudge him to go out and be the king that she thinks he is to restore righteousness to the earth. I don't know, but either way, folks, it was a great investment. It really was. There's not very many things. In fact, there are very few things in this world and in this life that are so valuable that they're worth giving your all for. Very, very few. Jesus is that kind of someone. It's worth giving our all for. She recognizes this. Someone's so valuable, it's worth doing. And the same is true for us today. So I've been saying all along, Jesus isn't someone to be trifled with. You're either with him or you're not. You're either in or you're not. There's no, there's no middle ground. He either came in human form to redeem us or he didn't. It's, it's that simple. And, and then there should be no middle ground in our response to him either. We should either, either live for him, give him our all, or we shouldn't. Third application I'm reminded one more time that Jesus' kingdom isn't going to be like anything that this world was expecting. Not at all. I mean, just think of the scenario. He's anointed by a woman in the house of a leper, surrounded by fishermen, tax collectors, and a traitor. It's not very awe-inspiring, right? It's just not. But, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful nonetheless because it shows us that Jesus came for the least, not the greatest. That he came for the poor and rejected, the outcast, the people who don't have everything perfect. Their backgrounds aren't perfect. Their lives aren't perfect. He came for sinners, sinners who, even after they're placing their faith in him, still don't live for him like they should, right? Still don't give him their all like they should. We continue to be hypocrites and failures. You get the picture. Knowing all of this perfectly in advance, he loved us still, chose us still, and died for those very sins still. And then finally... All of this reminds me of the psalm that Jared talked about a few weeks ago, Psalm chapter 2. Just listen to the opening four verses of Psalm 2 and think about it in the context of what we've seen this morning. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. <laughs> this is exactly what you see here. The nations raging, the peoples plotting, but, but all in vain. Kings and rulers of the earth taking counsel together of how they can, uh, against the Lord himself and against his anointed, right, who is just literally anointed in this scene, all thinking that somehow they can thwart God's plans, but all the while you see God <laughs> sitting there laughing at them, holding them in derision. In attempting to overthrow God's plans, they're actually fulfilling them. In hoping to kill Jesus, they're actually going to help him conquer death. In their sins, they're going to be used by God to help Jesus defeat sin once and for all. And what they think will bring about Jesus' uh, destruction, his failure, will ultimately lead to his victory. Thus the psalmist concludes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Will you bow your heads with me? 
Father, we're reminded this morning, even here in these first 11 verses of, of what Chris showed us just a few weeks ago, that your death is not an accident. Your, your execution is not a situation of, of just injustice, of you being caught in this terrible set of circumstances. This has been the plan since the beginning. Your knowledge of the events of this week, they are utterly realistic. You knew exactly what was going to happen at each step of the way, and yet you continued to walk down that path for us. You knew the kind of people you were dying for, and yet you continued to walk down that path for us, not because we deserved it, just simply because you are a gracious God who loves showing mercy to the undeserving who loves taking sinners and making them sons, criminals and making them kings. You, this is all about you showing us who you are. And so as we walk through the events here next year, as we come back to this in January and we begin to, to understand the things that are unfolding, help us to have this perspective. That, that, that We're not just reading any normal saga of the account of a death of, of some unfortunate soul. This is... This is the divine plan, the central point of all the scriptures, everything that the Old Testament pointed to and everything that the New Testament points back to, the very thing around which we're supposed to build our lives, help us to see these events for what they are and to respond accordingly, to give you our all. The woman in this scene is no fool, and we today got to fulfill your very prophecy here to remember her. She is no fool because she gives things that she cannot keep to gain things that she cannot lose. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to have a similar mindset and a similar heart as we live our lives day in and day out, recognizing that everything we have is yours. And so thank you for this time in your word this morning. Please apply it to our heart spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody for coming today. We're so happy that... Uh,